Welcome to episode 10 of Shellshocked. This week's topic is the science of persuasion and includes an interview with author and social psychology professor Dr. Anthony Pratt-Canis. He'll talk to us about how con criminals and other charlatans can convince us to do things we never thought we would. We'll also have a science report about the psychological phenomena that lead good people to do bad things. And later, we'll have a good news segment from Marilyn, who'll tell us about a doctor who blew the whistle on a profit-making ring that was giving real cancer treatment to perfectly healthy patients. So trust me when I say that this episode will be quite convincing. No, really, trust me. Or at least brace yourselves for shell shock. Welcome to Shellshocked. Well, Marilyn, I think it's of note that the documentary film about James Randi called An Honest Liar came out on DVD and Blu-ray this week, and for a limited time it's available on Netflix, Watch Instant online. And that's because this week's topic on the psychology of persuasion is directly related to the kinds of things that James Randi has done for years, and I think nobody ever did it better than he did like investigating the claims of hundreds maybe thousands of charlatans who make claims ranging from psychic abilities to paranormal powers to free energy contraptions you name it and of course every one of them has turned out to fail even the most basic examination under proper observing conditions as randy likes to say but regardless a lot of them gain a following and tend to persuade people to give them their time their money their family and friends try to save them, and they ignore and rebuke these people. And it's really amazing how surrounded we are by persuasion tactics every day. Yeah, and what's um, very interesting to me also is people like Randy or uh, Banachek or, or anybody who says, I can do the same things and I'm going to show you. They, the people, when they say, but I was, you know, I'm lying to you or I'm using deception or whatever, they don't, they still don't believe it. Yeah. They're like, no, you're incredible. You know, you're psychic too. And it's, it's amazing to me that they don't want to believe it's sort of that uh, they're being conned. Yeah, probably the most famous investigation Randy's ever done, of course, is on Yuri Geller. And Geller used to love to get his audiences involved. And I think that's a kind of con, too, because rather than saying, look at me, I'm magical, he was saying, look at us. We have these powers, and all you have to do is tap into them. And I think that's very attractive to people. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I said I had Bigfoot right now, you'd know exactly what I mean, right? And yet, we don't have a Bigfoot in a zoo. There's no reason to believe in Bigfoot. There's been fur. It turns out to be a black bear or something like that, or, you know, someone's coat in the closet they took a piece of. And people believe it, what, based on a few grainy photos and one little film that turned out to be a fraud by admission. And yet people still buy into this cryptozoology stuff. You don't even need a body. Nessie, um, chupacabras. (laughs) You know, I talked to Anthony Pratt-Canis this week, um, a social psychologist, as you well know, and he's the interview for um, this episode. And he was talking about some of the um, persuasion techniques. And it turns out there are over a hundred persuasion techniques that have been identified by psychologists. So, of course, you know, I couldn't say, can you just summarize them all for me? (laughs) There's so many of them. But he has this wonderful video series that he helped make for uh, the AARP. And they talk about some of the most common. And uh, so I wanted to sort of go through five of them that I think stand out the most. One of them is reciprocity, the tendency to feel a need to pay back a favor to someone. And con artists use this. They'll do a little thing for you, and then they know that they can expect you to want to do something for them in return. The interesting thing is that this even happens in our everyday lives when we're not being conned, or maybe we're being conned a little bit. Like when you go to Costco and they give out those free samples. (laughs) Those aren't just so you can taste the food like a little chef and figure out whether or not it's got that mm, sousson of pepper flavor or whatever. It's to give you something so that you'll feel a slight need to pay them back by buying the product. And it doesn't work every time, but it doesn't have to work every time. Just enough. Yeah, just enough to have that edge, a little percentage, to more than cover having the person stand there and cook the food or hand it out to you with white gloves. Would um, 
an old term for that be, or would this be uh, part of it, the, that foot in the door technique? Well, that's a little bit different. Def- foot okay. in the, yeah, foot in the door is a phenomenon in which you get someone to do a small favor, and then you rely upon their, their need for com- uh, consistency. Okay, okay. And so to not go through with the second request, which is much larger, but it's a usually a larger version of the small request they said yes to, then they feel that cognitive dissonance, that feeling of hypocrisy and inconsistency, mm-hmm. and will do anything to avoid that. And, you know, these are non-conscious processes. It's not like someone walks up at Costco and says, I'll take one of those, and now I'll repay the favor <laughs> by purchasing the product for you. And it's not a cognitive decision-making right. thing. And I think that's part of the reason that when you present these to people, they have a reluctance to believe that they would ever fall prey to them. Right, because they're not conscious. Uh, and just talking about, you know, um, cons in, in general, or people who use these things, I, I find them, um, they're so intelligent in the way that they notice all these little things. And it's like, I wish they would use them for good, you know, yeah. uh, you know, they can read people really well. Um, and it's amazing the things that they pick up on. Um, but then they use them to, to get what they want. Well, that's a great point. A lot of folks who use these kinds of things, they may not know the term reciprocity or the right. psychology behind it, but they know what works. And maybe mm-hmm. they happen upon it themselves and just by trial and error, or maybe some other con artist trains them to do it. Mm-hmm. And they might not know the term either, but you're right. They tend to be pretty smart people who you think, wow, if you would put that much effort into starting your own business or you know, doing finding some non-nefarious means of making money, you could be really successful. Right. <laughs> you know, here's another one that I love the term, by the way, phantom fixation. It's a situation in which a con criminal will create a future self for you to imagine. And they imagine they have you imagine what you're going to spend that money on that you were going to get from them. Or, hey, can you, you know, what color boat do you think you want? And they they get you to imagine yourself in that driver's seat or in that future self. And then it emotionally motivates you to do the things that they say you need to do. Wow. So the better your imagination is, probably the smarter you are, the more likely you are to fall prey to this. Uh, preying on the the hopefulness of what we want to get. Yeah, exactly. Here's another one, social proof. And you know, whenever I teach this to my social psych students, I always use a commercial from Toyota Camry in which they say, Toyota Camry is America's number one selling sedan. <laughs> it doesn't say anything about the car itself, which they're great cars and they have a good resale value. I'm not dissing the Toyota Camry. I'm just saying all they've said in essence is everybody's doing it. Why don't you? Yeah, so why don't you? You must be an idiot. You know, if all of America is buying this car, what's wrong with you? Get up off your duff and go buy one. Aren't you American? Yeah. (laughs) So if others are doing it or others are investing or others are winning, there must be something to it. And so these con criminals, sometimes if they're doing it by mail order, they'll send out something to you that tells you about the five people who won that week and they have pictures and bios and stories Mm -hmm. and it makes the winning seem more real and then it sort of reinvests you in the scheme as well because you think wow these people are investing in and it's paying for them so if everybody else is doing it then I should too. Uh, not, it's not really a con but uh, I just saw this in, in Santa Cruz we were walking by uh, a, ga- a, gas, uh, a gas station and it said a million dollar ticket sold here ah. uh, yeah, and and I was uh, talking to my husband and I was saying well that's then this is probably the least likely place <laughs> to to buy a, a lotto ticket that will win again I mean what's what are the chances that two people <laughs> will buy the the ticket from this store you know but it was sort of like well statistically speaking it's exactly the same as not right true but because there's no you know it's totally random, random. I always tell my students that's that true that's a true. lot of people even a lot smarter than I am say uh, if it's so unlikely that you'll win the lottery that if you buy a ticket today and I don't, we have equal chances of winning. Wow. <laughs> zero. And it hit, you know, if you buy a ticket, yours isn't exactly zero. It might be point zero 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 whatever one, but still it's so close to zero that statistically it's yeah. zero. So you're not going to win. And my students rail against that. You don't know that we're not going to win. Yes, I do. And I'm willing to put money on it, but I'm not a betting man. <laughs> That's great. 
Probably the most common one that we hear out of the five that I'm going to talk about is scarcity. You hear this all the time in advertisements. Act fast, uh, supplies are limited, or my favorite one, if you're one of the next 14 callers, you'll receive blah, blah. But what they won't tell you is if you're the 15th caller, you'll get it too. Exactly. So they haven't lied, but they've used scarcity, the idea that mm -hmm. something is rare, time is running out. And of course, that not only makes the product or the service or the investment seem more valuable, but it also puts a time limit on your decision making. And that's whenever someone does that to you, you should pull back and think and get yourself out of the situation. Because if someone doesn't want you to use your cognitive processing, probably they're not doing things in your best interest. Very, very well. Um, I just noticed this also. Uh, we've been laughing about this because we've been driving down um, roads with gas stations selling warrior merchandise uh, and all of them say last day last day to get your your shirt you know and then we'll drive by the next day and it's still there last day <laughs> <laughs> and we're like oh we better we better get on that really it's the last day today might really be the last day <laughs> yeah. so and it does it you know even if you don't need the product i have found myself oh my god i i you know, I really want to get that. It's it's not going to be around. And like you say, it is. It's sort of they happen unconsciously. Yeah. You, you know. Look at all those Beanie Babies people bought back in the eighties <laughs> that are worthless now, and yet they felt like, oh wow, I better get these now because they're going to be really valuable in the future. I don't know what the hell they were thinking. Why they thought those things were going to be so valuable? Those quarters. You know. They did. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have a personal story to tell you about, um, actually I have two, about being con. Okay. Um, one of them happened when I was still in college. I was sitting on this grassy area outside um, the classrooms. They shared their building with the bookstore. And so I'd gone in and bought my books. And, you know, textbooks are still very expensive today, and they were back then too. And um, so I was sitting there with my bag of books and there was this guy sitting on the grass too. And he struck up a conversation with me about the cost of books. And of course we both pissed and moaned about it. And then at a certain point after, you know, having this friendly conversation, he was a nice guy and a good looking guy. And he seemed like a college student like I was. And he said to me, um, yeah, what's really a drag is I have a class to go to and I'm going to be completely unprepared and I'm going to fall behind because I can't get the book. And I said, oh, why can't you get the book? Thinking <clears throat> maybe they didn't have one or they'd run out. And he said, well, because I got paid today. And he held up a paycheck and it had a name on it. And it was for quite a bit of money. And I don't know that it was his name. I didn't check his photo ID or anything, but I just assumed it was his name. I wasn't even thinking I was going to be conned. And uh, I said, oh, well, you have the check. Why don't you go cash it? And he said, eh, because my boss asked me to wait until later today to cash the check. And like, uh, he's not going to have the funds in there to cover it if I go cash it now. And I'm just screwed. And eventually, I don't know if I suggested it or if he did, or maybe he influenced me to suggest <laughs> it. But the topic was brought up. Why don't I give him the money to buy the book? And then he'd be willing to pay me back. And he said, it's worth so much to me. I'd be willing to pay you back double. And of course, I said, no, no, that's not necessary, etc. And he said, no, no, I insist. So <laughs> somehow we struck that deal. And here I am, and I'm looking back on the young, naive Sheldon doing this with my jaw dropping. I handed him the money, cash, to walk over to the bookstore to buy his books fully expecting him to come walking back with a beaming smile on his face and thank me gloriously. And then somehow later on, I would end up getting my money. That did not come to pass. No. You're <laughs> Instead, still waiting, huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm still waiting decades later. The man walked away toward the bookstore and I never saw him again. And he took my money and Lord knows how many people's money he took that day. And, and I think a betting man would say he probably wasn't even a college student. Oh, goodness. He was just there and he conned me. And, you know, I'm a psych student at the time. And I'm <laughs> sitting there thinking, how did you fall for this? This is so obvious. But it's always obvious in retrospect, right? Right. And I I always think, and this is why I couldn't do it, it's how, how could he do that? Like, I would just feel so 
terrible, you know, um, walking away with someone else's money. And yeah. uh, I mean, obviously, we don't know the, the circumstances, but I, I always I'm so empathetic towards the towards you. Like, you know, here's this nice guy that gave me this money to buy a textbook because he wanted to help me. And I'm just walking away with it. You see, this is why you're never going to make it as a con criminal. I know. I can't have a conscience, right? You can't have a soul, you know. <laughs> you can't, yeah. You have to, I always tell my students, listen, with the little that I really know about psychology in comparison to the large body of knowledge out there, with this much knowledge and no ethics whatsoever, I could be very wealthy. Yes. If I were willing to put the time and effort into it. But I just, like you... Imagine that person's face when he figures out they ain't coming back, and I couldn't live with myself. I couldn't sleep that night. Yeah. What? When? Uh, so, how long did it take you to realize he wasn't coming back? It was a bit. <laughs> I mean, I had a class coming up that I had to go to, but by the time the class was starting, I had pretty much figured out he wasn't coming back. And I really never told anybody for years after that because I felt so embarrassed by the fact that I had been duped like that. And I think a lot of con criminals rely upon the fact that you're embarrassed because you feel like a fool. And that was a small amount of money when you look at the weapons of fraud video that um, I mentioned earlier that Dr. Pratt Canis helped create for the AARP. It's for free on YouTube. You can watch mm -hmm. it. Some of these people gave as much as $100,000 to con criminals. Yes, yes. Over a period of months or years, mm -hmm. of course. But still, I mean, my little 50 bucks or whatever it was is nothing in comparison mm -hmm. to this. But it's the same principle. Yeah. And I was just thinking that, um, you know, some of these con artists... Uh, do it over the phone. Um, yeah. And that must be easier because, you know, it's sort of like the whole Milgram experiment, you know, where the farther away the victim is and you don't actually have to see him. It must be easier to, to do that, I would think, yeah. you know, when you don't have to actually see the person. I have another story to tell you where I almost got conned, but this time I came out victorious. Okay. So just to save my reputation and career here. <laughs> Um, so I was sitting on a bench waiting for a little bus to come, the little tram that's sent by a hotel to pick me up in Monterey. And um, I was staying at a hotel there and I was touring the area of Cannery Row where Steinbeck wrote his novel and all that. And um, so I'm sitting there and I'm just enjoying the day. And it was a, you know, sunshiny day, nice weather, etc. And out of the corner of my eye, I see this uh, police officer across the street. And she had all the trappings of authority visually. You know, she had the, the dark blue uniform on and the reflective sunglasses that hides their eye muscles, you know, so you can't tell their <laughs> expressions. It's very intimidating. And the little metal clipboard that they flip open to write you the ticket and, you know, the patches and the... on on the sleeves and the badge and all that stuff. So, you know, she's a cop and she's standing over there and I figure she's giving tickets for parking or whatever. And then I get the, I realize that she's looking at me from across the street. And I thought, uh-oh. And you know how you get that feeling like, you know, where'd I hide the pot, but yes, you don't have any and exactly. don't even smoke pot. But you get that feeling <laughs> in the pit of your stomach like, oh no, they're... What did like, I do? They've, I, they've I, targeted I, me. The tiger <laughs> is staring at me. And I'm in danger. So I just sat there trying to be a good citizen. And she comes walking across the street. And now my heart's pounding because it's clear she's making a beeline for me. <laughs> and so she gets up to me. And she doesn't even look up at me. She immediately just looks down and flips open her clipboard. And she says, I'm afraid I'm going to have to give you a citation. And I'm just speechless. And I said, for what? And she hands me this thing. And at first my eyes couldn't even focus on it because it was just so out of place and weird She's handing me a bumper sticker and it's all sort of dog-eared and folded up and stuff like she'd done this a thousand times and had it a long time. And it has a big smiley face on it and it says, I love your smile. And she hands it to me and says, for having a beautiful smile. Oh my gosh. And I looked up at this bitch and I thought, <laughs> really? You're, oh my. And I look more closely and I realized that the patches on her sleeves are not patches like an officer would be wearing they have smiley faces on them oh my goodness the blue of her pants doesn't match the blue of her shirt so this is not really a uniform this is something she's put together and she starts telling me about a charity that she works for and i don't remember the details i didn't even hear it oh, i'm just so upset by now and i'm thinking lady did you pick the wrong person today <laughs> so she starts you know, yammering on and on. And then finally, at the end, she says, not can I, but how much can I put you down for? 
Oh my god. So I look back at her holding that little bumper sticker and I said, "How about nothing?" Ooh. And she said, "What?" as if this never happened to her. And I said, "Nada, zilch, zero." <laughs> Good for you. Do you need it in another language? And she said, "Well, uh, okay then, fine." As if I'd been really rude, right? I'm the rude one. And uh, so she, I said, "Well, have a nice day." And I took the bumper sticker and put it in my shirt pocket. And she said, "I need that." Are back. you just gonna keep that? <laughs> and I said, "It was a gift, wasn't it? You wouldn't be trying to use the principle of reciprocity on me, would you? Where you give me..." And I started giving her a little mini lecture oh my on the God. principles of persuasion. And she just held up her hand like, "I don't want to hear it." And she just wandered away, probably wondering where the hell am I going to find another bumper sticker. And I still have that bumper sticker to this day. To remind you. I have it up on a cork board like a shrunken head. <laughs> like, I won. And this is my little trophy. This is my trinket to remind me that one time I didn't get duped. Good for you. <laughs> I feel so victorious. And now I realize what she was using right. um, is something called the fear then relief procedure where it causes someone a great deal of stress or anxiety or fear at first and then abruptly relieves the stress. And when you do that, people are so relieved and, of course, they're pumped full of adrenaline and, you know, dopamine for pleasure and all this that they're not using their faculties correctly. And she was going to take advantage of that. And this time she didn't get away with it. Yes, no, she didn't. <laughs> I <laughs> Well, and, and, that's, and that's the other thing about... Uh, is no nobody's above getting scammed right and so we need to be really aware of all of these uh, terms and and try to remember them in this situation and know that you know um, take time to think like you said yeah no one is above this and more than we would like to think it's coincidence that put me in that one situation with the man who ripped off my money for his supposed college books. And in another situation, I was of a state of mind that I was aware of the trap and I got out of it. But training matters too. And Pratt Canis's book, as well as the, the training video um, for the AARP, gives people some simple little cognitive tools that they can use to notice when they're falling prey to these things. And it, I think it increases the likelihood that they'll be able to remove themselves from the situation. Well, great little tidbits of information that we're going to learn later yeah. on today. Our guest interview this week is with Dr. Anthony Pratkanis. Dr. Pratkanis is a social psychologist who specializes in economic fraud crimes, propaganda, marketing, and the psychology of persuasion. He's a professor of social psychology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where he received their Excellence in Teaching Award for the 2003-2004 school year and was named the psychology class of 2005's most revered professor. Dr. Pratkanis received his Bachelor of Science degree from Eastern Mennonite College and went on to complete his Master's and Ph.D. in Social Psychology at Ohio State University. In 2005, he was elected a fellow of the American Psychological Association, and in 2011, was elected a fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. He's co-edited several important publications and is the founding editor of the academic journal Social Influence. Dr. Pratkanis received a Telly Award for his work as a scientific consultant for the AARP's Weapons of Fraud, a companion video that, along with a paper publication, assists people in recognizing and avoiding financial fraud schemes. And he even served as a professional witness in a trial accusing the band Judas Priest of influencing young men to suicide with subliminal messages in their music. Dr. Pratkanis is the author of several of my favorite books on this week's topic, including Age of Propaganda, The Everyday Use and Abuse of Persuasion, which he co-wrote with the eminent psychologist Elliot Aronson. Anthony Pratkanis, welcome to Shellshocked. Glad to be with you, Sheldon. It's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, and on behalf of your audience, I want to thank you for all these podcasts. I know everybody's excited about them. Well, thank you very much. Let's start out by defining what psychologists like you mean when they say fraud and how that relates 
to scientific information we have on things like persuasion. Yeah. You know, when we study fraud, deception, and so forth, uh, we don't use a, necessarily a formal definition, but kind of accept the definitions in the domains we're studying. So when I study economic fraud crimes, so the, you know, the criminal that calls somebody up on their phone and talks them out of their money, we just use the, defi- the legal definition intent to deceive somebody for, for some sort of gain. Uh, you know, when I do uh, work on uh, deceptive advertisement, the definition would be, uh, you know, capacity. An advertisement has a capacity to mislead or, or, uh, or uh, uh, mislead a person. With that, that doesn't have the intent. And of course, with propaganda, it's a little, a little trickier. There, what the person gains from the propaganda is usually seen to be in conflict with either a historical record or some sort of scientific. Uh, evaluation. And in your book, Age of Propaganda, you talk about some interesting and sometimes even paradoxical research findings about things like persuading people to give donations or getting students to be neat and tidy, that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about those research findings and what you think they teach us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is the core of the science of social influence. And the science of social influence has been going for about 60 years. And what we do is we do experiments to see what persuades somebody and why. Uh, a few years ago, um, I did a review, and we found out that there were—I uh, found that there was 107 different social influence tactics that people have studied experimentally to, to see what persuades. They go by exotic names like alter casting, normal reciprocity, or even a penny will help. And these really are the the core tools for understanding how influence works in any situation. So if you will look at a, you know, some, for instance, why does somebody not believe in climate change or why, uh, um, uh, how does a fraud criminal work, you want to go in and look at what those kind of influence tactics are doing. Which ones are they using and how are they being used to get an understanding for, for how that person's persuaded that's being targeted in that situation. So to give you some examples, the neat and tidy, how to get your your kids, your students <laughs> to be neat and tidy. That uses a tactic called altar casting. Altar casting is putting that person in the social role that you want them to be in to get the maximum persuasion that you desire. So in this particular uh, tactic, it was based on a study done by Miller, Brickman, and Bolin a few years ago. They went in to a classroom, and uh, fifth grade classroom, and they wanted the kids to be neat and tidy. Some of the kids got a lecture on the value of being neat and tidy. It's important to keep the classroom up to shape and so forth. The other half of the, the classrooms were told that they were neat and tidy. The teacher would say, gosh, you guys are so neat and tidy today. The principal would come on the intercom and say, boy, you guys are one of the neatest, tidiest classes in the school. And the uh, and the other and one of my personal favorites, uh, the janitor would come in in the middle of the class, poke his head into the door, and say, "You guys are the neatest, tidiest classes." <laughs> what was the result? Well, that lecture did absolutely nothing if it did anything good at all, because when you lecture somebody, what are they thinking? Oh, why is that guy wrong? Oh, here we go again. The dude is droning on and on and on, and so it has no effect. However, when somebody's told that they're neat and tidy, now they have a social role. They want that there's all the pressures to to be consistent with that role. They see uh, their classmates doing similar neat and tidy, so they want to be part of that group, and they become neat and tidy. Now, the really interesting one in this, this set of studies was the second one. Here they took second graders and told them, that they were good at math, that this was one of the best classes in math to show up in school. It's a, it's a of these. The control group got another lecture on the value of math. If you ever watch that movie, Stand and Deliver, sure. where, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, Escalante comes in and he's playing a, a teacher and he says, man, you guys are so good. It's a, a, a Hispanic Latino group. He says, you got this math in your blood. And all of a sudden this gets out to form everybody else. Well, the same thing happened in this classroom. 
Now, that's an important lesson because we've been telling kids they can't do math. It's too hard. Yeah, but you got to do it, you know, but it's important. That's the lecture condition. Nothing's happening. But by telling these kids that they got math, challenging them to do better, then you get the math abilities. Wow. I can go on with a bunch of these tactics. <laughs> we got 107 of them. And, you know, they're used every day in all sorts of situations. What first got you interested in studying things like this, the psychology of persuasion or propaganda, et cetera? Yeah, you know, basically my, uh, my, my, my academic career, my scientific career, you know, I go where the influence is. So if I see, you know, when I see a con criminal, somebody forking over 10K on the phone, I say, holy cow, why did that happen? Or Nazi Germany, why in the world does that happen? Or somebody joins a cult, and, you know, they're doing strange things. Why in the world does that happen? That's part of what, what fascinates me. The other part is then I, you know, I'm an experimentalist. So I say, okay, what's happening there? And then we'll go test it. But this uh, interest goes all the way back to when I was in college, which is, I guess, over three years ago now. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> it goes back to when I was in college. And I went, as you noted, I went to Eastern Mennonite. And I have a large, large uh, great appreciation for Mennonite values, anti-consumerism, pacifism, uh, you know, respect for the environment. But when I got there, it was a, all of a sudden a crisis broke out in one of the churches arguing how long a woman's prayer strings on her bonnet should be. Short string, long string. And this was a really vicious fight. I mean, they wouldn't talk to each other. If you were a long stringer, I wouldn't talk to you if I'm a short stringer and vice versa. Families were being divided. And I sat there and I said, holy cow. What in the world is going on? He just had a president of the United States resign. He had his starving in Biafra. He had that Vietnam War. And we're worried about a prayer string? What's going on? And at that moment, my, you know, sort of my science, my career got set. I wanted to know the answer to that question. And what it did was it opened up two questions, basically. How do I know? What's right? How do I know what's truth? And that led me to, you know, become a scientist because I think that's the, the most effective way to learn about our world. Uh, and it's represented in my course I teach called Social Psychology of Flim Flam, where we go through the scientific method and how, how to use that to, you know, understand everyday life, like uh, what's going on in the Bermuda Triangle and so forth. But it also opened up the question is, okay, now I know something about what, what I could believe, what might be the best course of action here, best thing to believe, how do people come to believe what they believe? Whether it's prayer strings, Loch Ness monsters, gay ther conversion therapy works, how do they come to believe that? And so I started, re I just held up in my dorm room from that point on, read everything I could, you know, got lost in philosophy, you know, read mysticism, said, no, that didn't get me anywhere. And then I stumbled on this science of social influence. I said, now that's my answer. That's a powerful way to understand what's going on. And that's how it happened. And there's a lot of information out there for people to read about the types of frauds they might fall for or the different methods that con artists use. Can you talk a little bit about some of those? Some of the, some of the sources of information? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, for the fraud, uh, for fraud crimes, I wrote a book called uh, The Weapons of Fraud, mm -hmm. which uh, if you Google, you should be able to get a, a free copy from AARP. Um, there's also a video online called Weapons of Fraud. You can, you can watch that. If you're interested in finding out about persuasion in general, my friend Bob Cialdini, Robert Cialdini, C-I-A-L-D-I-N-I, -I -I, he wrote a fantastic book on influence. And then, of course, I, as you mentioned earlier, I had my book called Age of Propaganda. And for those who want to go up a higher level and start to really understand the science of social influence, uh, I edited a book about six, seven years ago called The Science of Social Influence, where we tried to bring together some of the very best people doing this kind of research to explain their research, how they were doing it, and so forth. That's where I go through the 107 ways to persuade 
And, you know, a common response we hear from people when you bring up this topic fresh and new is that, well, people who fall for propaganda or con artists or duped out of their money, they must just be dumb, almost as if they deserve their fate. So does intelligence play a role in being scammed? Um, here's the deal. Not a, We have looked for any kind of personality variable that would distinguish somebody who's taken in a scam and for somebody who's not taken in a scam. And what we find is absolutely nothing. Nothing predicts. The only thing that predicts is that a con criminal, if, it, if they're going to take you for a, a, a big amount of money and they're going to invest some time with you, they're going to find out who you are. Then they will use that information against you. So, for instance, some people approach the world like I'm in charge, uh, internal locus of control. They may have a lot of intelligence. If I'm a con criminal, I'm picking up on that, and I'm going to pitch you in a way that makes you feel like you're in charge, that makes you feel like you're smart, and take you that way. As a matter of fact, one of the uh, common ways to hustle somebody in a fraud crime is a, what we call the expert snare and some research where you make the person feel like they know stuff. The classic example of that was, it still is a shell game, three-card money, pool hustle. In three-card money, what you usually do is, you, you have, the idea is you have to find the, the ace or the queen, there's two other cards, and you know they mix them around. And they may, and the, and the criminal will make you feel like you know which card is the, the winning card. They may have somebody uh, pick the obvious wrong card to make you feel like you know. Uh, bend the card. Gets the card gets bent. It's the money card, so you think you know for sure. But it's all playing on the fact that you think you're smart. Conversely, other you know, if, you, if there are other kinds of uh, profiles for victims. So, for instance, people who feel like oh, everything's luck, everything's chance. That that con criminal is going to sell you on a lottery fraud. If you feel like you're really concerned about a particular issue, well, there's charity fraud. So if that crime criminal um, is interested in taking you, they will profile you, and they will find your Achilles heel, your influence Achilles heel. This, this actually leads people to have a perception. You know, I wouldn't fall for that. Well, maybe you wouldn't because it wasn't tailored for you. Mm. But the pitch that would be tailored for you, you would fall for, and maybe the person who just fell for the pitch that you wouldn't fall for wouldn't fall for your pitch. The other side of it is, um, you know, what I liken it to is when you go up against a con criminal or somebody who's experienced an influence, it's like playing Michael Jordan or LeBron James or Steph Curry in basketball. You're going to lose. Mm -hmm. There's just no way because that's all they do. That's all they do. They know how to pitch. They know how to sell. And so you're not going to win um, because of all the influence coming to you. So if we have an internal locus of control, con artists can turn that on us. If we have an external locus of control, they can turn that on us. So That's give us some hope here. What do, would you say are some quick tips for us to use to arm ourselves against being duped? The key insight is, is that when a con, what a con criminal is doing is setting up a Disneyland of influence for you, a powerful situation that convinces you and so forth that this is a good deal. What you want to do is not enter into that situation, have techniques for, getting, for thinking about that situation, and having an exit strategy. So... How let's take each of those in turn. First of all, you don't want to get into that situation. Mm. Don't you know when when the phone rings, don't answer. Call screen. Have a way to get off the phone. The best predictor of whether you're going to be taken or not when a con criminal calls is the amount of time you spend on the phone. The more more time, more influence, the more likely to be taken. So have a way to get out of that. Second of all, and this is something that skeptics have been talking about. You know, for years, you need a way to constantly be thinking and processing information 
when you're in a situation where the influence is coming out of you, coming right at you, excuse me. And I recommend having questions to ask. So in one study we did, we gave people questions to ask about charity fraud. So somebody calls and that starts pitching on charity, here's some questions to ask. Well, interesting enough, uh, very few people asked those questions, but they got off the phone very quickly because they were thinking critically. They were asking questions. They weren't responding to the influence. And because of that, they could see through the influence. The final thing is, is you want to get out of that situation. And you either get out of that situation physically or mentally, so tune it out. And one of the cues that I use is when my emotions and my thoughts are suddenly being changed. I use that as a cue. I better get out of that situation. So you're watching TV, and you're watching a news story, you're watching an ad, and all of a sudden you're tearing up, and you're saying, oh, that's so sad, or, wow, that, you know, I want to back this, this cause because I'm angry. Well, your emotions are now being played on. Now, maybe it's fair. Maybe that's something you should be sad or angry at. But you need to get out of that situation before you make that decision. So use your emotions when they change, your thoughts. Uh, what, you're just thinking about your family. Now you're just totally thinking about you know, how I need to save the world because of whatever cause. Get out of that situation and evaluate it carefully. Great advice. Um, my listeners would never forgive me if I didn't ask you about the Judas Priest trial. I know it's been a while, but can you summarize that for us and tell us a little bit about your role? Sure. sure. That was back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, if I recall. And the issue with the trial was that uh, two kids uh, attempted suicide in uh, Sparks, Nevada. And um, the uh, CBS Records and Judas Priest were sued because, according to the plaintiffs, the uh, uh, record albums had subliminal messages on it. And so it was a song, Better By You, Better Than Me, which um, plaintiffs interpreted to mean, I'm going to commit suicide, go tell my mom. And then there was um, messages under there that said, do it, subliminally. The, uh, this came after a series of, of uh, lawsuits against heavy metal bands you know, that uh, had Suicide Solution, Ozzy Osbourne, and so forth. And all those were ruled okay because of uh, freedom of speech. It would be like you know, saying we can't have Hamlet because it dealt with suicide. But this was a different novel legal theory. And so what I did at trial was I testified to two two sets of uh, information. One is we had just completed a set of studies looking at uh, what was in vogue at that time, subliminal self-help tapes. So these were tapes that had music or some sort of ocean sounds or whatever, and supposedly embedded in the in the um, in the in the, the uh, within the music somehow were subliminal messages that would allow you to accomplish positive goals like uh, improving memory, improving self-esteem. I actually had tapes on how to improve your bowling score and how to get over rape abuse. So we took some of those tapes, the ones that did self-esteem and memory, and we gave them out in a, a, a two-by-two design. <laughs> you know, half the subject's got a self-esteem tape, half the subject's got a memory tape, and we also varied the label. So sometimes people got a self-esteem tape and it was labeled self-esteem. Sometimes it was labeled memory and vice versa for the other one. Uh, we gave out a bunch of memory and self-esteem tapes. They listened to it for six weeks. They come back in the lab. And the subliminal tapes do absolutely nothing. They don't improve self-esteem. They don't improve memory. Mm. Interesting enough, about half the people thought it did, though. So I testified to that. And, to, and then I said, you know, this is part of a larger picture. It goes back to the 1890s when some of the first subliminal messages were supposedly produced. Um, and if you go back to that period, it go, sublim, subliminal messages kind of go through a cycle. Take the most popular one. In the 1950s, uh, James Vickery reported a study where he took over a movie theater uh, flashed, eat popcorn, drink Coke very quickly. 
uh, so no one could see it, but Coke and popcorn sales shot up. So this cycle goes, somebody makes a claim like the Vickery one. It appears all throughout the mass media. It's lauded everywhere. Then what you find is legitimate researchers can't replicate the study. And oftentimes you find that the original study was a fraud. So right now we're going through that second. uh, So in the Vickery case, that study that he claimed he never did. It was all made up. Mm-hmm. It's, kind of, it's kind of interesting whenever I go to a party, somebody says, what do you do? I say, oh, I study influence. And then their voice will get really quiet. They're like, it's some secret. Do you know about the eat popcorn, drink Coke study? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, like, okay, you don't want the Russians to know this, man. <laughs> During the Cold War. <laughs> so, and it's interesting because it's not a, it was never done. There's no study. It was just made up. Um, so I testified a Jewish priest that, you know, that we keep going through this study, this, this sequence, and as a result, there's no evidence that subliminal messages work like this. Uh, this is kind of interesting for skeptics today because we've just gone through another cycle of it. After I testified, there were all these claims of how you can subliminally influence people to walk like grandma by showing them elderly words. None of those studies are... So and then it you know got trumpeted everywhere, um, in textbooks even, and uh, now we're finding out that they don't replicate, and there's high-profile fraud cases of this priming and subliminal priming, uh, Stoppel and Smeister. Uh, so we're basically repeating history again over the last uh, you know decade or so, and so that's that's the bottom line on subliminals. The outcome in the Judas Priest case, the the judge ruled that uh, there's no evidence that um, subliminals work in this manner that could cause somebody to commit suicide. Because you think about it, suppose I just whispered Mooney bus, you won't stop the interview in the middle here, Sheldon, and go find a bus to throw yourself in front of. Right. At least I hope not, man. (laughs) (laughs) People want to hear your podcast. They don't want you doing that, man, so don't do that. (laughs) Well, it's kind of you to say, although there may be some people out there who are hoping I do. (laughs) Well, Well, that's probably the best compliment anyone can be paid. (laughs) Who are your enemies in life? (laughs) You might be right. Well, no one can say that you don't have an interesting life and career, Dr. Pratt (laughs) Canis. Thanks. Where can people go to learn more about you and keep up with your work? Yeah, um, you know, uh, that's a good question. I'm uh, actually kind of being low-keyed right now because I'm working on, uh, you know, there's 107 ways to persuade. I want to have kind of a book or booklet on each tactic that people can read. And I'm expecting that to come out in about a year or two. So that's what I'm working on right now. You know, in the meantime, there's Age of Propaganda. There's Bob's book on influence and weapons of fraud. Great. Well, we'll have to have you back on when uh, that publication comes out. We'll talk about that then. You betcha. I look forward to that. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi, this is Marilyn, and this is the good news. This week's story was first detailed by Laura Berman in the Detroit News. And it's about an accident of timing, personal history, and incredible luck, both good and bad, that began to unfold in a hospital room. The result would save lives and unleash a federal investigation into a long-esteemed physician, collapsing his elaborate medical empire, uncovering the doctor's web of deceit, fraud, and suffering. The story starts at 10 a.m. on July 1, 2013, as Monica Flagg waited for her first chemotherapy session in the waiting room of the Crittenden Hospital Cancer Center in Michigan. This session came a full year after a routine urine test showed an M-protein spike that led her physician to refer her to Dr. Fata, a well-known oncologist and hematologist. When she was finally called inside the clinic, the infusion nurses argued among themselves, uncertain about whether to deliver the treatment by injection or a slow drip. In the end, Flag was given a single shot. By the time she returned home, she was exhausted and upset. Later that day, she and her husband, Stephen, returned to the deck outside the Rochester home trying to relax. When a few raindrops splattered, she went upstairs to close the bedroom window. 
Turning back around, Flag stumbled and fell on an open suitcase that she had been unpacking and broke her leg. That 4th of July week, Dr. So Mongleg, then 41, a Burmese-born oncologist, was making hospital rounds for Fata, his employer, when he checked for the first time on Flag, hospitalized with two fractures in her left leg. Because Mongle is a cancer doctor, he paid heed to her multiple myeloma diagnosis, the Velcade injection, and the medical record before him. It all triggered an internal alarm. Who told you that you have cancer, he asked her. But he knew the answer. It had been his employer, Dr. Fata. Dr. Fata's Michigan Hematology and Oncology Incorporated, MHO, was the state's largest private cancer practice in 2013, with clinics in seven cities, its own pharmacy and diagnostic center, and 1,700 patients, virtually all of them assigned to Fata, the tireless physician. Those who needed proof of Fata's dedication could look to the doctor's work ethic. He often labored past midnight or to the Swan for Life Foundation, a charity Fata established to help cancer patients and their families. Fata had a reputation for hiring doctors who superficially seemed like Mongle, younger with fledgling practices, often foreign-born with few Michigan connections. After a lifetime of geographic dislocation and family tragedy, Mongle might have seemed ideally cast for the role of a high-performing associate unlikely to cause trouble. Yet in truth, his life had schooled him in professional integrity and high-stakes drama. His parents, a physician and a nurse, had given Mongle and his three brothers a blissful childhood in Rangoon, Burma, now known as Yangon, Myanmar. Their boys were expected to become doctors. That comfortable, principled, and striving world collapsed in 1989 when Mongle's father, a vibrant 52-year-old man, got sick. After a diagnosis of brain cancer, the illness progressed swiftly, taking his life three months later. Mongle's life became an epic journey marked by repeated tragedies and, and obstacles to his success and survival. A younger brother collapsed on the college soccer field and died in 1993. Determined to support her surviving sons through medical school, Mongle's mother won political asylum in the United States, moving to Northern California alone, studying for her RN certification while working as a nanny in in-home health care jobs at night. Her schedule was relentless and surely exhausting. In 1994, she swerved off the road at 7 a.m. into a concrete fence and died in the crash. Mungle was tempted to quit, but instead drew strength from his mother's example. He worked into the midnight sun at an Alaskan salmon cannery every summer, amassing 100-hour weeks to pay his medical school tuition and expenses in Istanbul. Eventually, he made his way back to the United States, where he completed his internship, residency, and an oncology fellowship and married his wife, Mary. After she began a residency in radiology in Michigan, he took a position with Fata, proud to be associated with Michigan's most successful oncology practice, one headed by a physician who had trained at the elite Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. When he walked into Monica Flagg's hospital room on July 4th, he had worked in the practice for 11 months. Doctors rotated through Fata's practice, perhaps staying long enough to find evidence of disorganization and dysfunction rather than proof of ill intent. But by July 4th, 2013, when Mongle first looked in on Fata's patient, he was well-situated to uncover deeper wrongs. He had caught Fata in an outright lie a few months before, when Fata had insisted the clinics were enrolled in a professional quality program. Mongle had offered to help MHO win credentials from QOPI, a consortium that certifies oncology practices with high professional standards. Fata stalled, perhaps because approval is contingent on providing detailed case records. But after Mongle persisted in a series of emails, Fata emailed the staff. MHO has been QOP certified for three consecutive years with high scores, so let's hold off. It was Mongle knew a flat-out lie. I see that he has no ethics, no professionalism. I started looking very quickly for other options, Mongle recalls. A stream of young doctors interviewed for the position. Always young, fresh-faced graduates, never anyone with experience. When Mongle decided to resign, 
Fata tried to dissuade him. He promised Mongley's wife a job when she completed her residency, and then when that proved unsuccessful, brandished a non-compete clause in Mongley's contract. If Mongley's next job wasn't at least two hours away, Fata would sue. I could not work with this guy, he decided. He was so intent on leaving that he gave notice of resignation, effective August 9th, and he and his wife put a down payment on a house in Monroe. He accepted a position with the Case Western Reserve University Cancer Center in Sandusky, Ohio. That way, he and his wife would each commute roughly an hour each way. It was during that window of waiting that he encountered Flagg. That July 4th evening, after seeing her, he was stunned by what the hospital chart suggested. A cancer-free patient being given chemotherapy wasn't negligence. It was an atrocity. For him, one case like this was enough. How could a doctor do this? As a cancer specialist, he had special understanding of the horror he was witnessing, its cruelty. Pata's choice of myeloma, a cancer of the plasma cells in bone marrow, bespoke a certain shrewdness because of the subjectivity of its diagnosis. It was a clever niche for false doctoring. You cannot fake lung cancer. You cannot fake a tumor. But with this disease, a malevolent doctor could plausibly use the treatment itself as a smokescreen to obscure future questions. Flagg was diagnosed with smoldering myeloma and singled out for Fata's brand of aggressive, unorthodox, and very expensive treatment. She was subjected to three bone marrow biopsies and prescribed monthly intravenous immunoglobin injections, or IVIG, that cost $4,000 each. Ten months after their first appointment, Fata recalibrated the diagnosis to multiple myeloma, an incurable, often deadly cancer of the plasma and bone marrow, while preparing her for lifelong treatment. Flagg was younger and healthier than most multiple myeloma patients, Mongley knew. Her bone marrow plasma cells, cells that become malignant in actual multiple myeloma cases, were being treated to receive insurance reimbursement. The money stream could flow for as long as Flagg survived. That's what Mungle saw. What he felt, Mungle knew he had to act, but he also had to be certain he was right. On July 5, 2013, Mungle took a deep dive into the patient's records. In the privacy of the MHO Clarkson office, he poured through the file, recorded on computer and handwritten notes, seeking some justification for Fatsa's course of treatment. But every test result in the medical history confirmed his original reaction in the hospital. Flagg was being deliberately treated with high-risk drugs for a disease she did not have. If the patient actually had this pernicious disease, Mongley knew, the myeloma cells couldn't possibly be vanquished by a single dose of chemotherapy. But they were non-existent in Flagg. His visit to Flagg in the hospital represented a small miracle of timing. In two or three months, a visiting oncologist would have expected to find her blood counts normal, her cancer in remission. Mongley returned to Flagg's hospital room at Crittenton over the weekend, insisting she get a second opinion. He was forceful and clear, determined that she would listen. But his own crisis, he realized, was just beginning. Now, stunned by Flagg's case and almost out the door at the time of this horrifying discovery, Mogley recognized Fata's advantage. The senior doctor's network of association, his memorial slow kettering training, and lengthy patient roster had impressed him initially, too. Some staff members, nurses, and nurse practitioners had worked there for years. Why would people believe him? Mogley couldn't sleep. Although he had intervened in Flagg's case, he suspected her treatment might be the tip of the iceberg. How would he find out? It was hardly paranoid to imagine a scenario where Fata covers his own crimes, then concocts stories about the oncologist who quit. Who knew what a doctor capable of diagnosing fake cancer might do? Flagg's case wasn't enough to shut down Fata. He was certain of that. So over the 4th of July weekend, Monglai realized he needed to find very solid, very objective evidence of wrongdoing, an anomaly that even a layperson might understand readily. But he worried, too. What if this takes six months? What if I can't find it? Hindsight might be laser sharp, but Fata had withstood auditing from insurance companies, at least one malpractice lawsuit, state regulators, and the scrutiny of other doctors in and outside his practice for a decade. 
Manglay had witnessed some of his techniques. He had been kept from Fata's patients entirely, except for cursory interactions. If a patient has a cough that worries him, he would have the patient drive 30 minutes to his office instead of coming to me in five minutes, said Manglay. Over the next several days, Manglay's search of the records enabled him to find obvious breaches of professional ethics and likely fraud. He noticed a protocol for treating non-Hodgkin's lymphoma with rituximab, a, ta a targeted cancer drug. He researched the use of IVIGs, discovering that, as he suspected, they were being prescribed excessively and without any apparent medical basis on a large number of patients. Knowing that he needed allies, he described his concerns to an infusion nurse and a nurse practitioner, sharing details about the excessive use of IVIG and persuading them to intervene. At least one of them confronted Fata directly before resigning. At this point, Fata is kind of caught, said Mongley, saying Fata agreed to stop using IVIG, except in cases where they were clearly accepted medical reasons for doing so. To Mongley, that in itself was further proof of Fata's deceit. If a physician truly believed his own protocol is helping his patients, he would never discontinue a treatment just because another physician and staff objects. We caught him in the act, says Mongley. Mongley had reported some of his concerns to George Karashi, the practice manager, who was not a doctor. After the IVIG treatment stopped, he and Karashi met again in the Clarkston office. Together, they looked at a month of patient records, everyone who had IVIG, pulling up the records on Mongley's computer monitor. It was, look at this, some patients are correct, then look at this, this one doesn't meet criteria, look, this is Medicare fraud. Karashi had in 1996 uncovered fraud at Detroit's Lafayette Clinic and reported it under the False Claims Act, the federal whistleblower law. What Karashi did was assume the role of whistleblower again, as he and Mongley had agreed. It was Karashi who first spoke to the Federal Bureau of Investigation on Friday, August 2, 2013. At 8 p.m. August 5th, Mongley arrived home from work to find his wife introducing him to visitors two federal agents, one from the FBI, another from the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. He had been waiting for them. That evening, he laid out as specifically as he could results of his research over the previous few weeks. The excessive drug treatments, unusually aggressive treatment for terminally ill and old patients, protocols that didn't meet any accepted criteria. The agents took notes. Mongley thought, finally, something is finally going to happen. And it didn't take long. At 7 a.m. on August 6, not even 12 hours later, agents arrested Fata in his Chevy SUV. By the time Crittenden Cancer Center staff arrived for work, federal agents already were swarming the office. They did not let another drop of chemo go into anyone. They just pulled the plug. On September 16, 2014, Fata pleaded guilty to multiple counts of Medicare and insurance fraud, money laundering, and soliciting kickbacks, while publicly admitting that he had prescribed treatments that were medically unnecessary. His assets were auctioned and his wife and three children were allowed to leave the country. Fata was being held at the Federal Detention Center in Milan, awaiting his court appearance this past Monday, July 6th. Federal prosecutors were seeking a 175-year sentence. Scores of former patients, as well as their families, showed up in court Monday to come face-to-face -face with the oncologist. There is no true justice. You can't undo the past, said Karen Baldwin, whose husband died in 2006 while under the doctor's care. You can't bring back the dead people we love. On Tuesday, one member of each family affected got 10 minutes each to testify about how their lives had been changed by Fata. He gave me so much treatment, it stopped my immune system, said Terry Spurlock, 52, of Holly, Michigan. He's a monster and a master of deceit, one victim named Steve told the court via statement read by his wife. I lost three years of my life to cancer treatments. I hate this man. Some may choose to forgive. I never can. Maybe God can. Another victim named Patricia told the court on Tuesday, I trusted him with my life. It was medical genocide. I was a cash cow. The bone marrow biopsy was torture. I had to tell my son I had terminal cancer. I don't know how anyone could do something so horrible. You showed no mercy for me, so I have no mercy for you. 
Earlier this week in the Detroit Federal Courthouse, Fatah sobbed as he spoke prior to sentencing. Speaking to his victims of his treatment and their families in attendance, Fatah said he had violated the Hippocratic Oath and caused anguish, hardship, and pain. I misused my talents, yes, and permitted this sin to enter me because of power and greed, Fatah told the court. My quest for power is self-destructive. On Friday, July 10th, Fatah was sentenced to 45 years in federal prison. If it had not been for Flagg's broken leg on the very first day of what was supposed to be a lifetime of chemotherapy, Fatah might be practicing still. If Mongle had been less observant or perhaps less suspicious of Fatah, he would have left the practice as he had planned, exiting quietly as so many had before. Bart Berkson, the CEO at McLaurin Lapeer Regional Hospital, where Mongle now works, had met Mongle a year earlier, recognizing him as an unusually empathetic physician and offered him a job closer to his wife's work beginning that August. He saved people's lives, he says. It goes to the fiber and testament of the man. He's a hero. This is Marilyn, and this has been The Good News. Well, everybody, that's it for this week, and thanks for listening. Also, thanks to those of you who've been writing emails, posting on Facebook, and otherwise giving us feedback about the show. We really appreciate your comments as well as your continued support. And if you haven't done so already, please do visit our Facebook page and click on the SpeakPipe link on the left-hand side of the page. It's a free service that allows you, the listeners, to send us an audio message. And we plan to use some of them, with permission, of course, in future episode segments. And don't forget that next week is the amazing meeting in Las Vegas, Nevada. If you haven't already gotten your tickets, you can use the link in the show notes. And next week, I promise to return and give you a full report about the conference. And until then, you've been shell-shocked.